Good evening. Welcome to the third edition of The World Tonight. I am joined by my co-host, Adam Wallace, and my special co-host, Terrace Burke. Okay. Tonight's big story in the real big developing one over the last 24 hours is the resignation, stunning resignation of Shinzo Abe, Japan's longest ever serving prime minister. It was his second tenure, the same illness that forced Mr. Uh, Abe to resign back in 2007, a blow. Uh, this issue has now forced his resignation again and now leads Japan in a very odd place of having to find a new leader. And I'll first go over to Adam about what this means, you know, of a, a vacuum of power uh, in the LDP. Okay, so just to, uh, just to briefly go over, uh, last week we went a bit more in depth about future um, leaders <laughs> of uh, the LDP, which was sort of uh, maybe a bit ominous. Uh, <laughs> maybe we predicted it, who knows. Um, but just to, to just give a brief summary so next tuesday um it will be a meeting of or party members will get to vote on who to um succeed and then that will further go on to uh, uh actual mps and then we'll get a, a new prime minister but yeah there, there's a few um i guess key figures uh being in the race all uh of, of high seniority or having been in high seniority in his uh in his cabinet so yeah, the only real uh, major thing looking at these these leadership contenders is there isn't too much in terms of differences between them. Uh, obviously, you'll find some where, you know, one's a bit hawkish, one's a bit more dovish than the others. But overall, um, you're getting really, you, oh, I feel like you're going to be getting much the same of um, the LDP, probably until, you know, they're able to redefine themselves at whenever the next uh, general election is. But uh, yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll bring Terrace in. Terrace, uh, Shinzo Abe was the second longest tenured leader in the G7. What will his loss, you know, out now mean for Asia and international politics in general? I mean, it's definitely a huge loss. He's been a force in the region for years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's an argument he can be seen as kind of a balancing force against uh, Xi Jinping in China. Now to kind of have this tenured leader who's built relationships uh, with various leaders across uh, East Asia and the Pacific to be gone now certainly is a huge loss and kind of leaves almost a diplomatic void uh, mm -hmm. I'm being until uh, ever kind of takes the realm of uh, whatever uh, position Shinzo Abe held, what it could be described as, but finally uh, brings that up. Very true, and uh, we should note that there are four rumored contenders who are the leading guns for this, and I apologize if I butcher their names. Uh, the first one uh, is Taro Aso, who is the current finance minister, who was Japan, Japan's former prime minister it, from 2007 to 2000, and, no, from 2008 to 2009, I apologize, who succeeded Abe the first time when he resigned on the same thing he's now resigned on. However, he the issue with him is he's a bit old, and for many in the LDP, the 79-year-old leading him to the next election is probably not what they want. Um, there's also just uh, just to oh, yeah. cut in a bit there. Also, a former uh, yeah. leader who led to a historic, historic defeat, defeat of the LDP. Yeah. So that's already a big that, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, historic defeat. But, that's already not a good you know resume to carry over with. Yeah, there's that. Um, there's also uh. Uh, Yoshidi Sungura, Sunga, uh, who is the current, who is the chief cabinet secretary, uh, a role in Japan that's very important. Effectively, the 
head minister outside of the PM who runs cabinet discussions. Uh, he's also old, 71, but he is a loyalist of Abe, but a bit of different with him when it comes to stuff like Article 9. He's much more of a believer of the thing should stay. So that will be interesting if Abe views that in a negative sense, if, if that comes down to influencing MPs. Out of it, because Abe will obviously have a huge sway over his successor, uh, leaving into the position he's in. Um, the other name, uh, other two names uh, are Taro Kuno, who is the current uh, Japanese defense minister, seen as very hawkish, very much an, an, you know, a clone of Abe, been, has very much risen in the last few years uh, to one of uh, Abe's closest uh, confidants and would maybe be seen as one of the key leaders to win the position over. But that, of course, may depend on what happens internally with MPs and the different factions within the party. Yeah, he's just a, he's very popular as well. Um, he's known for his, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the specifics now, but he, he's made some very popular reforms to do with, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, specific weapons being stationed in the uh, mm -hmm. in Japan from the United States. So mm -hmm. um, it's definitely a case there where the people very much like him, but uh, who knows about the senior leaders within uh, the LDP. Sure. Yeah, and it should be noted that he is very warm in, in terms of the United States. So the United States would be getting an ally in the Asian Pacific realm with him staying. Another name also is Shungur Ishabab, Ishabab who uh, is the former defense minister. Uh, apologize again for the name things. Um, who was, who once, he and Abe have had a bit of a shaky relationship. Uh, Abe historically used to favor him to be a successor, but because of in issues over the years uh he may have fallen off that pedestal adam of course maybe could go in a little more detail than i am saying this right now. <laughs> but yeah again a very popular yeah. choice with the voters even more popular yeah. um definitely seen as the the top choice there um but also a bit more populist in his uh, economic approach mm -hmm. uh, which is where uh, he strays a bit more from Abe. but again as mm -hmm. i mentioned before no matter who we're getting uh you know, Abe's tenure ends in, or is supposed to end in 2021. And I doubt mm -hmm. their view is going to very much change from that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, if I just want to talk about for a sec, what do you think his uh, his legacy will be? Or what do you think Abe will be remembered for, on, you know, domestically and on the international front? Um, I would say, in a sense, I think his main thing is he was a political comeback. I mean, he lost the job so brutally the first time because of illness, and that many people thought, you know, Abe's career is over, it's finished. To take back the LDP after, you mentioned earlier, a very, you know, terrible defeat after the 09 elections, and to bring it back to power in a moment when Japan was reeling from the tsunami and Fukushima both in an economy that was stagnating, to being there, the longest serving, you know, consecutive uh, PM ever, uh, and restoring Japan's economic growth and strength in the region, I think is really his key legacy. He may have not gotten his Article 9 passed, but it's re I mean, on the most part, his economics and domestic policy, he goes down probably as one of the greatest Japanese uh, prime ministers ever. But on the other hand, yeah. uh, just to, to prevent a yeah. bit of a, of a different but, view, yes. um, he, at the moment in time, at this snapshot, uh, in polling is doing the worst he's ever done, uh, as high as 70% disapproval mm -hmm. rating. So uh, this is definitely not the best time for him, definitely yeah. echoing when he first uh, when, when he mm -hmm. first resigned. So, um, 
you know, relating it to the, the COVID-19 pandemic, mm -hmm. the, the seeming failure to contain that, uh, the scandal around the cost of the Olympics is also is also a big thing mm -hmm. around there. Um, but really, um, just from my perspective, his true legacy is definitely going to be around defence and um, coordinating um, allies against uh, against China. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely will be interesting to see how that leg legacy progresses. As you say, he didn't get his um, Article 9, 9 repealed, which would allow Japan to take a definitely more active Mm -hmm. uh, and less pacifist-based approach to uh, to their military and foreign policy, but um, yeah, definitely, I think his main positives are going to be his uh, his role internationally rather than domestically. Oh, I agree. I mean, there's a very good argument to say that when he took over, Japan was slipping, and America's you know preference and key allies in the Asian region it had been surpassed by others, and he now leaves arguably as leaving Japan is America's and really the West's key ally in the fight against China, as Japan has been the first real country in the region to say, we will stand up to China economically and militarily if we have to. As you know, mm -hmm. Abe got controversial, you know, there was a bit of controversy diplomatically between the two countries uh, when Abe, Abe decided to send warships, peace ships under Jap Japanese law, but you know, into the South China Sea with the United States Navy, which did not make the Chinese government thrilled at all that Japan was taking more aggressive measures. Terras, you want to add in? I mean, yeah, just it's the it's been definitely key thing uh, for Abe, but again, it's failed with Article 9, and then there's been other aspects negotiating with Russia, uh, with islands, and then with it's North Korea and Japanese citizens affected. That those two things have not yet happened. So for Abe to kind of lack in those is also kind of a draw. I agree, and I think you know I, I was I will say as someone who did praise him, there are some things I will criticize. I mean his insistence on changing historical uh, events, for example, with the comfort women in South Korea. That let's be very clear that what happened there was a war crime and very horrendous, and to whitewash it in the way he has done, and many in, in his party have, is despicable. And I don't like to go this far, but I will say, uh, you know, that's something that really can't be changed, even if I understand if it's something of national pride you want to fix up. Yeah. It's definitely a very complex legacy, uh, yeah. and that comes with a very complex political uh, landscape like Japan's is. And then lastly, uh, we didn't say his name just because it, uh, the other front, uh, person who is in the name, uh, a moderate uh, compared to uh, uh, Mr. Abe is Fumo Kishida, who uh, is his former foreign minister who fell out a few years ago with him due to uh, disagreements in cabinet. Not seen as a strong uh, front runner for the job, but popular with the public. So it'll be interesting uh, to note if uh, that may correlate at all with any senior MPs or senior party members who have that vote come uh, next Tuesday. Yeah. Fantastic. And yeah. just to, to take a lead on here for a second, we have two leadership elections from the Anglosphere, but let's kick off with uh, the Conservative Party of Canada and their leadership election. Do you want to give people a bit of an overview, overview yeah. Peter? Yeah, so the Tories have uh, been having a leadership. This was originally supposed to end in June, but COVID, of course, like everything, and it feels like in modern life, it upended every, uh, the whole thing. The outgoing leader, Andrew Scheer, did lost the last election uh, and was very much blamed internally for mistakes such as saying you wouldn't march in a gay pride parade and also uh, playing an iffy response on the issues of abortion, which many felt 
you know, hurt the Conservative Party, both issues in the greater Toronto area, which is, you know, where Canadian elections are won. So the overall Tory race had um, former uh, Stephen Harper, uh, cabinet minister and deputy uh, Peter McKay, who was the last leader of the, the progressive conservatives who merged with the Reform Party to make the modern Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, it else, he was considered for months the front runner. The other person, uh, Aaron O'Toole, who won this contest in the inevitably, uh, was a former military veteran who entered Parliament only in 2012. McKay's entered Parliament in the 90s uh, and is reti retired in 2015. O'Toole was a former veterans minister for Stephen Harper and was the outgoing shadow affairs, shadow foreign affairs critic under uh, Andrew Shearer. Uh, then there were two other candidates, um, Dr. Leslin Lewis, who really came out of nowhere uh, from being an unknown candidate to becoming very much a power maker in this contest, uh, a former lawyer, uh, and especially in the era now where we see a lot of racial uh, division. Uh, one of the first uh, person of color in Canada to make an active run for uh, the leadership of a major party. And then lastly, there was Derek Sloan, who was seen as the uh, more, uh, I don't like to use these words, uh, right-wing uh, option who was very controversial with his views that masks mandates are wrong and that any and that uh he would remove canada from the paris climate agreements very much here uh, everyone's favorite uh, right-wing uncle um but um yeah the race itself mckay ran as a very much a red tory you know middle of the ground approach o'toole ran in 2017 really ran more to the right this time than his 2017 vid um he really went after a cultural conservatism you know he said he wanted to defund the cbc for liberal bias uh he said canada was in a war of culture uh and the other two leslie lewis was a much more you know classic right-wing option uh talking about she was pro-life and she was social concert proud to be social conservative and wanted market reforms and derek sloan was just <laughs> uh the, probably the most right-wing person in that race by like a mile Ultimately, uh, Aaron O'Toole won 57 to 43, and uh, the Tories did that. And uh, Terrace can uh, lead off that discussion. Yeah, so uh, Derek Sloan, for Americans, it's best to describe him as my current U.S. Representative, Steve King. Uh, just wacko supremacist. Uh, there's no, I'm not holding back. Derek Sloan was just an interesting candidate, to say the least. Leslin Lewis uh, kind of reminded me almost of Rick Santorum in 2012, just kind of came out of nowhere with a very social conservative sphere. She did really well in uh, the prairies, uh, prairie provinces of Canada and Alberta, which can be described as Texas. Uh, like what we usually think of Texas, not necessarily in this election, but certainly in 2012 and some, uh, some of our like Great Plains states. And it was just interesting overall. Uh, Aaron O'Toole uh, comes famously. Uh, it was discussed that during discussions to uh, almost censure or remove Derek Sloan from the uh, Conservative Party caucus, uh, he just said, no, we can't do this. Uh, kind of was a famous voice in defending him. And that, I think, ultimately helped play a role in his victory against Peter McKay. Peter McKay had an open basket. Uh, he honestly could have had a shot to have had this leadership in 2017. He didn't take it. He missed it. He decides to run in 2020, misses it. And so not only do the Conservative Party, at least in my opinion, have almost a weaker, uh, stronger than Andrew Scheer, but weaker than what Peter McKay could have done. But there was also the fact it took 
nearly two days to count the ballots. <laughs> started on Sunday, and they had a problem with the uh, with a ballot open uh, an envelope opening machine, and an extreme number of ballots. I think it, reports put it close to thirty thousand ballots that had to be counted by hand, had to be redone. So the results went from being released, I think it was 6.30 to it was sometime after midnight Eastern. It Mm -hmm. was a very weird realm, but certainly it was just not a look for the Conservative Party of Canada at all. Adam? Yeah, so just looking at this from uh, the challenge that Altor now has um, politically to try and reclaim uh, the the Conservative Party of Canada into government, let's start with how um, people perceive him and, you know, voters from the outside who may consider voting Conservative but now have them as leader. A uh, a Lega poll was conducted which found people were 37% less likely to vote for the Tories and only 13% more likely to vote for them. Uh, furthermore, uh, the most recent lean toss-up model still has uh, the Conservative Party losing seats, hovering in the high 20%, um, and actually, you know, losing them to the NDP and uh, uh, the LPC. So, yeah, currently, despite the expected boost of a, of a new leader, isn't really isn't really coming around. And um, yeah, as we we talked about in the uh, the previous show again, uh, which you should definitely check out, is there's a massive uphill battle for the Conservative Party of Canada, and they just aren't cutting through. You know, multiple polls have been released, and, you know, with the disclaimer that he's a he's a new figure, he's not really known outside of um, Ontario and the, the greater Toronto area, that, um, they, you know, people don't find him trustworthy, they, uh, they don't find him honest, those kinds of things. So, yeah, um, to have, <laughs> to, to lose uh, in a battle of honesty to, to someone like Trudeau is, is definitely a, definitely an interesting one. So yeah, um, really going to be a massive battle, mm. especially because he was the guy who said, I can win the voters of the greater Toronto area. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and really what we're looking at now is the possibility that he might even lose his seat at the next election. Um, so yeah, definitely uh, very challenging for them. Uh, who knows? what the future is for the Conservative Party of Canada at the moment, because it really isn't looking as pretty as they'd be hoping for. And I think it's interesting. Look, I think to O'Toole's credit, he, much, he ran a much better leadership campaign than Peter McKay to uh, quote an infamous uh, quote that Peter McKay used on Andrew Shearer, that Andrew Shearer's people made sure the media heard again. Uh, you have an open net shot and you missed it. Uh, McKay missed his shot. I mean, he was the front runner for months and uh, to... Um, here at O'Toole's credit, he got his voters out. He mobilized them. He he got the votes he needed in the leadership. Um, I think, you know, Jonathan in the chat is saying he disagrees with that. And I, I think that's fair. I mean, it is interesting to note that um, one thing that's re- really interesting with O'Toole since he's taken the job is his first press conference. He says the two things that really caught my attention. I'm pro-choice and I'm pro-gay rights, which really shows he's already starting to have to move himself into the political center to win voters over. I mean, he can't, you know, say, I I, I get the conser- conservative view. And I'm sure, yes, that's how you have to run a leadership campaign. But he also now realizes, I can't to fall be, into the Yeah. yeah just to jump into Just yeah. to jump into this, you know, he's mm-hmm. obviously moderate, moderating a lot on, say, something like climate change, where yeah. he's against a carbon tax. 
but he's still for some kind of price on pollutants. Yes. And just to, to talk about yeah. it in the chat where saying, you know, he's going to, you know, maybe O'Toole strengthens. I, I, to be honest, I don't think it matters who comes into, who came into power for the mm. Conservative Party, because ultimately, you know, it doesn't seem like there's going to be much favour in who's leading them. They're not getting that post-election bounce. They need somebody who can actually, you know, they have to do something first. You know, there's countless times um, in polling where, you know, somebody gets a new leader, they gain a few points or whatever. We're not seeing that. And I can, I think I can understand that why, because the Conservative Party have to rebuild their image. And it's, you know, when, I'm not discounting them or anything. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that they definitely have a very difficult um, fight. Well, and I think and, it's inter interesting that, you know, there's been rumors, you know, for months now, will Trudeau's throne speech be voted down by the comments? Will there be an election? And already O'Toole's first thing is like, no, uh, let's put the brakes on the idea of an election, because I think he realizes most Canadians don't even know who he is. Exactly. And, most, and most people probably are like, uh, so what's the difference now with him and Shearer? So I think for him, really, he's going to need this next few months. Could he? Sure. Could he do much better in the polls? Absolutely, but he needs to build up, you know, the, the way, you know, Stephen Harper, right? I, I don't like – Stephen Harper was a master of this, going on television every other night and basically saying, this is my view, and the liberals aren't going to do this because they're afraid to take me on. And it worked. Yeah, I mean, exactly. inevitably, you know, you know, it put pressure on, you know, on the liberals because Stephen Harper every day and night was going on programs he didn't agree with. I mean, Stephen Harper didn't like the CBC either, but who was on the CBC every night when they, the first invitation came up? Stephen Harper when he had yeah. to win. But yeah, I think O'Toole, I'm a little more bullish on him, but I do think, yeah, I think the first key will be how, who he puts in his shadow cabinet, uh, really, uh, is an indication of where he wants to take this party. Uh, Will he ask people like Leslie Lewis or Peter McKay to join his cabinet, even though they're not MPs, but in a symbolic gesture saying the conservative family is now united? And it will be interesting to see uh, how his team, you know, rolls out. Because look, you know, he has a, an interesting path ahead of him. You know, Justin Trudeau has led a lot of landmines for the Tories to, to, to go after him. They haven't gotten him yet. But can they maybe, you know, with someone like O'Toole, start building up the what Shira couldn't do is build up this narrative that Justin Trudeau is sloppy, and getting him another term in office means more sloppiness and embarrassment for Canada. But that remains to be seen yeah. if their spin doctors can do that. Uh, anything you'd like to add, Terrace or Adam? I mean, yeah, it's just been you've seen skills that Trudeau's had, and the Conservatives have not really jumped on them at all. Uh, within even going into the 2019 election, there was stuff the conservatives could have jumped on, and they didn't. They were able to ultimately didn't do much with it. Uh, still, they gained seats in 2019 and brought the liberals to a minority government, but in the end, it didn't really do much. <laughs> it didn't help them. It left them arguably in a weaker position than they were mm -hmm. when they were down to 99 seats. So, well, and the thing is, and I'll praise the liberals on this. The Liberals didn't win the popular vote, but they got the votes in the seats they needed to get over the line. They got their seats in the GTA. They held on in the Atlantic. And I think right now, I mean, the only party that really wants to go into an election is the Bloc because they know, because the Bloc is – not the Bloc. I apologize. Yeah, it is the Bloc, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, the Bloc and, the, and, the, and the, the provincial party. Because they're a popular Quebec force, and they would probably win seats from probably all three parties, the NDP, Tories, and Liberals right now. But yeah, 
The Tories don't want to go into an election because their leader's unknown. Uh, the NDP has had its own issues, you know, with an identity crisis. I mean, Jing Mitsin has really been a disappointment as NDP leader, uh, really overshadowed by the main two parties. It really sometimes feels like the NDP really doesn't exist anymore in the chamber. Uh, but yeah, um, I think O'Toole has a road ahead. I mean, look, he's from the GTA, so he's going to have to use a lot of that strength he knows in the GTA to uh, win places back that uh, have been slipping away from the Tories since 2015 and 2019. And now we'll move on to the other Anglosphere uh, leadership contest. And uh, for full notice here, for those who may not be aware, Adam is a member of the party we will be discussing here. So in case anyone needs that consultation, this is the Liberal Democrats, uh, the party that has been the uh, imitation of jokes and other things throughout the last few months for many odd reasons. Uh, and uh, the leadership contest was between Ed Davey and Layla Moran, both of whom who Ed Davies, the old orange booker type, uh, served in the coalition government uh, under David Cameron. Layla Moran is a much more younger, uh, more the leftist, lefty, you know, part of the party, not lefty actually, but the lefter uh, version of the Liberal Democrats uh, wasn't in the coalition government. Uh, and she was running on, this, you know, fresh ideas in the contest. While not covered was, you know, a bit of a, a bit slugfest between the two. Uh, Ed Davey won the, the contest in a bit of a landslide, which I think most people didn't see coming. Uh, first, go to Adam. You are a member. Uh, I don't know who you voted for, and you may go into that if you'd like. But uh, what is your reaction as a Liberal Democrat to the result? So, yeah, I'll just give off my first observations with the actual result. 36.5% for Ed Davey versus uh, uh, 36 point, sorry, 30, sorry, 63.5% versus 36.5% mm -hmm. for Leila Moran. That was colossal as a as a as a landslide for him. Really, I think it's the second highest result or mandate a a Liberal Democrat leader has gotten in a leadership election. Uh, I think the first was in a, a Paddy Ashdown back in the uh, the nineteen nineties. So you know this is this is a very big moment for the Liberal Democrats. Just to set the scene for you, for those of you who may not uh, know a, a bit about British politics. So the Liberal Democrats has always been a bit of um. Well, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, they were seen as, um, you know, a new party trying to shake things up between the big two. And mm -hmm. uh, they were able to get to a height of getting, you know, very similar vote shares in the, the mid to, to high 20s um, to try and rival the Conservatives and the Labour Party, um, representing liberalism against, you know, you know the, the third wayism of, of Blair or uh, the centre-right to, to right-wing ideology of the Conservative Party. But in recent years, after the, the coalition, which they entered with the Conservatives, uh, they collapsed uh, just entirely. Um, I believe in 2015, which was their, their first post-coalition election, mm -hmm. they got 7% of the vote, um, compared to the, I think it was about 26% or so, that they got in 2010. So people clearly uh, felt very distrusted by them. Uh, because, you know, they went back on some of their promises that they made uh, and got very little in return. So uh, that's just a bit of the scene. Ever since then, you know, they've been going up and going down. And in 2019, they were doing the best they've ever done in the local elections where they got their best ever results and the European elections where they got their best ever results. But then you get to the uh, 2019 general election and they lose seats. They gain, you know, they get 12% of the vote, 11 seats. Mm -hmm. So, 
And now at the moment, they're on 6% of the vote. Just, you know, diminished to what the once great giant that Paddy Ashdown and Charles Kennedy, who were former leaders, uh, once, uh, once reigned over. So yeah, definitely a very, very difficult position for the Liberal Democrats. Mm -hmm. And what these lead, what Ivor Lee or what Ed Davey is, is going to have to do is rebuild that Liberal Democratic uh, uh, view, you know, present uh, an ideology that can inspire people, make them go, you know what, I'm tired of the Labour Party or Conservatives, I'm going to go for Ed Davey uh, and the Liberal Democrats. Now, my personal view and, you know, not getting into to personal views mm -hmm. too much, but but as a member, um, I voted for Leila Moran. I saw it as a as a high risk, high reward uh, situation. The Liberal Democrats, in my view, are dying, and that's really sad to say as a member. But their position is diminished, um, in t you know, colossally, um, and the new leader has to set out some new form of liberalism in the UK. But um, Ed Davey, in my opinion, doesn't really give that. He's you know, he his whole idea during the leadership election was I can the one I'm the one who can win over moderate conservatives, and that is what um, you know the Lib Dems need to appeal to. That's where they they come second in a lot of seats. They need to win over conservatives to to get over and win them. But from my point of view, um, and from some members that I've seen leave the party and so forth, he really doesn't he doesn't bring that. Mm -hmm. um, he's a very uh, I guess, you know, a bit of a, a boring man and from a party that's representing liberalism and needs to be exciting and actually needs to fight for something, it's not really getting that. Um, but then again, the majority of the membership voted for it. Um, so clearly they're seeing something unique. Maybe they're seeing that, you know, Labour Moran couldn't have won over moderate conservatives and he can. So, yeah, definitely going to be very interesting to see what the Liberal Democrats can do in the 2021 local elections that are coming up. Um, that's really going to be his first test. Um, but who knows? Uh, back in 20, uh, I think it was, you know, 2019, Vince Cable, who was the, the leader then, um, acting leader, I think, um, he got the best ever results of the Liberal Democrats at a local election. Um, and they were only polling at 6% then. So who knows what Ed Davey can do? Um, I'm not too optimistic, but I'd love to hear some, uh, some of the so everybody else's view if they, if they have any. Terrace? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, arguably there's been two events which have hurt the Lib Dems. Uh, you can argue they're still kind of reeling from the coalition and the damage that occurred from that uh, from 2010 to 2015. And then the second thing I think has been Brexit. They took a very hard and so arguably that there's at least uh, from my view it's been there's still kind of a view that there's still this remainder party and they were continually that and at 2019 they just got busted for it. I mean yes they gained share of the votes but they lost seats their own leader lost their seat in Scotland uh, couldn't hold their own against the SNP so their Brexit the Brexit spokesman lost to the Tories in London all places <laughs> I mean yeah I mean Tom Brady losing uh, Stephen Lloyd in Eastbrook, uh, it's just been kind of hit or miss. I mean, they did give, uh, uh, who's the, I can't believe I forgot the foreign minister's name. Uh, Dominic Rob. Yeah, he, yeah, he had a very close result against the Dems in his seat in Asher and Malkin. So it's just very, uh, very interesting how they are. They're set up for potentially victory in some seats, but we also have to consider they need those same candidates that they had in 2019 in those seats too. 
and I think you know for the yeah, and for you know for this you know I I think the big problem with the Lib Dems, I think you hit two of them. I think they still haven't gotten out of that image of going into coalition with the Tories, betraying quote unquote their values to go with the party that they don't necessarily agree with. And yeah, they really don't. I mean, the Tories at the different policies, but they all went through it. I mean. A lot of Lib Dems to this day complain about especially the proportional representation uh, thing that they never got through with the government because the Tories forced a referendum that ultimately in the end, the average voter probably didn't know what the hell they were voting on, excuse my language, um, and just said no because, you know, this. why would we want to change a voting system when we have other priorities at hand, in a sense. And I think also, yeah, the, the coalition, the Nick Clegg years, and then there really was the tactical you know, almost comedy of errors when it came from Joe Swinson's end. Uh, she was warned by many senior Lib Dems, Charles Hughes, uh, Ed Davey, it's Norman Land. I can go on and on telling her, do not touch the word revoke. You are just going to shoot ourselves in the foot. And look, they did very well in places like Surrey, other parts of the Southeast where they, they, they gained a significant portion and saved Tory seats. The problem, of course, is they also went backwards in seats that used to be lived in. Look at the Southwest. If someone goes back to one of those maps of the Southwest in 97 or 2005, you have orange all over the Southwest. It's, most of those seats now are solidly blue Tory seats now. Yeah. A great example is St. Ives. It's, you know, was a seat they were supposed to pick up by most plantations. Tories get a 7% swing their way. It's went out an eight percent majority. It's just been really a comedy of errors. And I look, I, I personally believe neither two of these candidates in my mind are good for the party. I'll, I'll say it straightforwardly. I thought Davy and Leila Moran both had their problems. Davy's very boring, and also sometimes, and I don't like to bring up one incident. Yeah, uh, he's very temper uh, tantrum type. I mean, there was an interview yeah. once with him on LBC of all places getting asked a simple question and he loses his temper on an, on the interviewer. And yeah, I get it. She's kind of a Tory, but you don't lose your cool like that on an interview when it's a subject about what is it? Schools? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, a very, just like the conservative party of Canada, it's an uphill battle. Yeah. And um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the only real interesting thing about it, Davey, and we're talking about the coalition a lot and how that's been a negative view for the, the Liberal Democrats. That's mainly been because they've either, you know, rejected it or apologised for it and felt humiliated by it. Yeah. And Davey, on the other hand, is uh, is talking a bit more about, um, you know, looking at the good side of the coalition. Mm -hmm. And while Joe Swinson sometimes did that, he's really uh, bringing up the fact he tripled renewable energy uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as a great example because he was the climate change and energy mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. uh, Secretary of State. So who knows if that strategy will work? In fact, in some places where the Lib Dems are looking to to bolster themselves in Kent and Surrey, mm -hmm. uh, the coalition is quite popular. Um, you know, it's not going to be the winning strategy to to um, to win in the north with the seats they used to have there, like Sheffield Hallam, which used to be Nick Clegg's old seat. Or um, yeah, exactly. And just, you know, uh, they used to have some in, in uh, Liverpool as well. Um, you know, you've also got the Southwest. I doubt it's going to do very well there because after mm -hmm. the, um, in the 2015, uh, sorry, 2015 election, they did terribly there as well. So there is a lot that as um, the Lib Dems are going to have to focus on. The only real interesting note I, 
I, I think I can end with is um, about how how the Lib Dems work with the Labour Party to uh, you know cooperate tactically to try and oust the Conservatives because ultimately that's their very similar aim. Mm -hmm. um, in uh, 1997, Paddy Ashdown and Tony Blair had a very informal agreement to basically uh, to to not campaign or canvass in target seats that uh, one or the other was was bound to lose was in a very distant third place. So we'll be we'll be interesting to see if that sort of thing is is replicated. Ed Davey is looking for always looking for that kind of thing. Who knows if Keir Starmer is going to be for that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, very uh, I guess turbulent future. This is really, I guess, you know, from my perspective, their last election to really, you know, prove themselves and try and reclaim their their position in British politics. But uh, and I also think uh, as well, just you know, I think look, the best option in my mind didn't run. I think that was Daisy Cooper. I mean, she won a Tory seat in twenty nineteen, St Albans from Tories, and on a really good night for the Conservative Party, yeah. winning a seat back like that, and she had that appeal. You know, ver you know, the leftish of the party, but also likable. I mean, she was the type of person who could probably win over maybe that Tory voter in the Southeast who said, OK, I didn't vote this time for the Liberal Democrats because I didn't like their Brexit views, but I'm open to voting for them now with uh, something different. But yeah, I think they are in a very delicate situation, as their, right, their polling suggests. Uh, they're only at 6 or 5%, depending on the poll. And if that were replicated today... They'd only have, I think, what, five or six seats in the parliament as right now? Yep. And even yep. Ed Davies' seat, if all irony, would be in danger in that situation as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, to wrap it up, I think, look, look Davies' very, you know, the coalition thing, the, it, it will be interesting to see how he plays that off defending the coalition because I'm sure the Tories are going to fire right back and say it was our accomplishment because we had a Tory government in charge, a Tory PM. Uh, so it's interesting to see how that works. And I also think, um, you know, how that, you know, the inevitable question that will get asked to him about, uh, the bedroom tax, the question that the Lib Dems yeah. always dread that get asked about, or the students, you know, raising tuition fees, uh, those two usually always come up. Your party said you were against both. You voted for both in government. So why can't exactly. you? Yeah. And I also think, look, Leila Moran, was interesting, but I think her big problem was whether it's fair to say it or not. She did very much came off the wrong way with a lot of people. It seemed like there was the obvious. I don't really want to get into this because a lot of people on Twitter have their opinions about this incident of her slapping her ex-husband, uh, which some allege was domestic abuse. Some say it was defending herself. I don't want to get involved either way with that, but. It seems like that type of stuff and probably being a little too open on certain subjects, probably at the end of the day, probably did her a lot of damage and probably would have not made her successful. Um, but no, I think, you know, I, 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 I kind of like Layla Moran, surprisingly, for someone on the right end of the political spectrum. Uh, I find her actually interesting. But, yeah, they're in a do or die situation uh, because they're getting pulled on all ends of the thing. I mean, they, they were wiped out in Scotland by the SNP. Their northern seats are gone. They're mostly Tory now. Their southwestern seats are gone. Their London seats are either in Labour now or their marginal Tory seats that, you know, the Tories won barely or they won back places like Richmond Park with solid majorities. Uh, but, yeah, they're in an interesting spot and it will be interesting. Uh, if they do form something with Labour, 
what those conditions may be. Would it be PR or would it be some referendum on PR again? So that's interesting yes. on its own. So on more pleasant news, I'll give it over to uh, Adam to talk about a great development out of Africa this week, which is the eradication of wild polio. Adam. Yes, exactly. So as, um, as the introduction uh, just said, yeah, um, polio has been, or wild polio, um, which is the more dominant strain, has been eradicated in Africa. Very, very big news, um, mainly because it's been the first um, eradication or, or big regional eradication um, since 40 years ago with um, smallpox. Mm -hmm. um, you know, ultimately, these things, or the, the main reason I, want, I wanted to talk about this specifically is because it really shows that uh, internationally collective effort can produce incredible results for for people who are in very difficult positions you know this isn't a thing that came easily this took a lot of time a lot of money and a lot of effort internationally mm -hmm. um but ultimately led to or has led to a very very um positive result and, and just to go a bit more into the specifics so when they say it's been eradicated what they mean is that um, that after three years have gone by, there hasn't been a single case of wild polio recorded on the continent. Just to give a brief, uh, a bit thing why this has been so difficult. So um, for for polio specifically, or, or wild polio, um, in one of every 27 million doses, there is a very, very minor chance that the vaccine can actually give you a, uh, uh, a case of the disease. And for that to be given to somebody and then it spreads along the community, it can kickstart um, a very difficult effort where it suddenly flares up again. As I said, it was, it's a very rare case, but that's sort of been why it's been a very difficult thing for the continent. Um, but yeah, as I just, as I initially said, it's a very good thing to see. Uh, less people are gonna be suffering now in the world, in a very difficult region of the world. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I wanna share that, that good news. And to, to actually, I want to give a bit of an interesting story. So um, the reason, so, so polio eradication has been a very difficult subject because specifically in Asia where, um, or specifically with the Taliban. So the Taliban, uh, if people didn't know, it has a, uh, banned people taking the polio vaccine. And this is a very, very long story about the CIA trying to find Osama bin Laden via fake polio vaccines or fake um, polio uh, vaccines to give to people and find his his DNA or, or people relate to his DNA or something like that. I can't remember the, the specifics for it, but it's a very, you know, it seems like it's a, some kind of a sketch, a comedy sketch. But, um, but broadly, um, that has led to the Taliban distrusting people or polio um, health workers who are trying to give vaccines to people and so forth. So, just you know, along with this incredibly positive news of um, it being eradicated in a region of the world, there's also going to be some very difficult, um, I guess, knockoffs from the war on terror in the past. So, yeah, just a, a bit of a positive and a big a bit of a negative uh, to mm -hmm. come from uh, from the world of healthcare. Yeah, and it's a real good thing, I think, to mention with Africa with, you know, it's really been, you know, good and, you know, especially in the last 20 years, we've seen, you know, a lot of the West put more money into eradicating illnesses in Africa. We've seen, you know, the United States under, uh, I forget the exact app, you know, George Bush sent money to fight uh, HIV and AIDS. And we've seen since the U.S. has done that, 
HIV and AIDS in Africa has declined significantly to the point mm -hmm. where they, you know, it's under a regular control. So it's a very good uh, health uh, story. Um, so yeah, um, it's a very, you know, good news. Uh, we wish we could give you good news on this next subject, and that is a uh, Belarus. And uh, go first to Adam, and then go around. Uh, Adam. Yeah. So I just, I just um, was saying this as a as a quick update that. Um, that if you want to find out a bit more about the situation in Belarus, I really recommend you listen to some of our previous shows where we've talked about it more in depth. Um, but just as an update, uh, the Russian president, uh, Putin, has announced that he's placing police resources on the border of Belarus to send in if things get violent. Now, he's been very specific and careful with his language. Um, we like, as, I, as we always mention, Putin is always very careful with his words. Um, and... In this case, he's saying that I don't expect it to get violent, but I'm putting them there just in case. So, you know, if tensions break down in Belarus, we clearly know Putin's motive. Um, maybe this is incentivizing um, Lukashenko, to, who is the, the Belarusian uh, uh, president, that, uh, you know, maybe he should be a bit more careful with the way he's dealing with the protesters and so forth, because he's been very reckless recently. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's just a, a broad, uh, I guess, sort of more specific news. I really recommend you check some of our some of our previous coverage to to get a bit more of that. I agree, and uh, at that note, uh, we ask that you follow the account, you know, Elections Daily on Twitter. Uh, also follow back us on all cloud services, uh, whatever you watch, Apple Stream, Spotify, etc., to follow our podcasts. But yeah, uh, it's very, you know. Uh, you mentioned that because Lukashenko this morning just you know was on the airway saying that you know the coup against him is a NATO plot, uh, you know in the typical uh, strongman Eastern fashion it's always NATO. Uh, Taras, you you're from a part of the world. Your family's from a part of the world that is you know dealt with you know individuals like that. Uh, are you uh, what do you uh, see right now with the whole situation with um, Belarus and the surrounding area? I mean, yeah, this is just, this is, again, classic Eastern strongman, you know, it's, 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 if it's not Russia, it's NATO, if it's not either of those, it's someone else. Uh, it's just very crazy, and it's, I mean, protests are still going on, they seem to have been uh, very large, uh, you know, there was reports earlier in the week that, uh, media members were being rounded up and then russia today which if you don't know what russia today is it can uh <laughs> i gotta how to put this differently. um almost it's more fox news to putin than fox it's news it's a russian state it's a it's russian uh, state tv is the simplest way of putting yeah. it yeah yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, just anything the Kremlin you know, says, it, it gets repeated on there. Let's just put it that exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And we're very gladly uh, thing on social media how, when their press credentials were shown to the uh, Russian, whatever form of police they were, uh, that they got released fairly quickly compared to other media members. Yeah. Nothing going wrong there. And I think the interesting thing, which is mentioning so, Eastern Europe, this was a few weeks ago, but I think you should get to mention, you know, you know Putin's, you know, uh, 
you know, Gaul has always been the destabilized region, but in Montenegro of all places, uh, a pro-Western government, they're on the verge of having elections, just took over power temporarily, which is a real uh, big, you know, blow to someone like Putin who uh, was trying to hope for some instability in Montenegro. For those who are not aware, uh, Montenegro is a new member of NATO. It's been in NATO for just about a year now. Uh, and, you, you know, there's been a government that's been a little more fondish of the Russian government. Uh, and then, uh, but they've uh, fallen. Uh, we now go also to another subject that is China and its more repressive actions in Hong Kong. Adam. Yep. So again, I implore you to check out some of our previous covers yes. where we're, to we're, we're talking about the national security law. That's the big thing in Hong Kong, which is repressing people's freedoms. Uh, you know, you're getting individuals arrested on very uh, trumped up charges and so forth. But more specifically, this comes after the Chinese uh, Coast Guard seized um, a ship full of Hong Kong activists who were fleeing to Taiwan. Now, it was, uh, I believe, 10 individuals uh, or 10 young uh, activists who one of which had uh, been previously um, detained and released on bail for promoting se secession and colluding with foreign powers. These are very broad terms I'm using here, and I will add that uh, these are the ones the, the Chinese have uh, stated they've been using. Um, but they've now been sent, uh, so the, these, I guess, refugees really, uh, political refugees, have um, tried to flee the country and are now being sent to the mainland of China, where they're you know likely to to not be heard from uh because hong kong and china in terms of what you're able to hear from the media and so forth are very very different so um a very sad story there uh, about people you know being uh given these charges that they ultimately don't deserve um on a on a, a law that is being uh mm -hmm. so you know dramatically enforced um so suddenly that it's uh, it's quite it's quite worrying for Hong Kong, and um, I've talked about you know how in in the past on the show before how everything seems just so much more depressing there with the, the with freedoms being repressed. But yeah, that's just uh, just wanting to raise people's awareness of another story of uh, of people's freedoms being uh, taken away from them, and um, yeah, yeah, very sad. Of, you know what's happened with Hong Kong, uh, disturbing in the. Failure of the West. Uh, Terrace, you have some developments for us about Hungary. So, yeah, this uh, just happened about five or six hours ago, but I just saw it. Um, Hungary has announced uh, starting September 1st it will close its borders to all foreigners except Hungarian, uh, except uh, European uh, free area citizens, uh, so Schengen uh, zone citizens who have permanent residence in Hungary. Uh, yeah, this was announced by uh, Gergely Gulyash, the uh, kind of the cabinet minister uh, for Viktor Orban, who's the prime minister of Hungary. Uh, this literally just happened, so it's in response, I'm guessing, to increasing uh, COVID transmission within the region, uh, which is not surprising given signs of possibly a second wave occurring in Europe and the continuing wave here in the United States. Indeed, and it should be noted with Europeans, uh, Corona uh, trackers that France has had a very dramatic increase in the last few days with its COVID cases, though the number of deaths have been low, but there has been a significant uh, increase on the French side with COVID, which is a bit of a disturbing development. Uh, one can hope that that disappears. 
On more lighter note, we always come to our new favorite segment of the week, and that is the loser of the week. Uh, there are two obviously great nominees for that, or maybe three if Terrace wants to add one as well. Uh, but we'll first go to Adam with his nomination for the loser of the week. Okay, so I'm going to be a bit more broad here rather than a specific person, but I'm going to be nominating the Egyptian Senate for the, uh, for the loser of the week. So just to give a bit of a, a brief overview. So the Egyptian Senate is the upper house of the... Um, uh, yes, the Egyptian legislature. Um, it was created in 2019, um, sort of as a as another way for the um, the the military backed government of, of um, El Sisi to basically, you know, enhance his power and allow himself to give that veneer of um, political legitimacy. I mean, it's a it's a it's a um, legis it's a legislator which has a third of its members appointed directly by the government. So you know it's not exactly the freest there. Um, so in this election campaign, it's been for questionable conduct. Um, the, uh, the Egyptian government was only implementing safety precautions in areas witnessed by the media. So um, you know that always difficult thing. Um, they've also been you know restricting uh, medical um, you know uh, access and so forth. Um, to areas that are pro-government. Uh, furthermore, human rights groups have been prevented from th visiting polling stations. So it's, you know, very clear not, it's not been free and fair. Um, there have even been uh, accusations that the, uh, the pro-government and the main party in uh, Egypt, the nation's future party, was buying votes in the election. So there's that. Um, so you wouldn't be too surprised that the opposition have decided to boycott and say, this isn't legitimate, this isn't free and fair, we're not going to vote in this. And ultimately, of the 62 million registered voters, only 7.57 million voted a or cast a valid that's ballot. A, that's so, a double whammy. <laughs> that is a incredibly low turnout, the lowest ever turnout, uh, 14%. Uh, with an extra 1.38 million who just, you know, casted invalid votes. So, which in itself is an amazing figure for me. I've never seen anything that high from an invalid ballot. Um, but the real reason that the loser of the week is how they reacted, which was to basically say, um, and now I may add that this is um, stipulated in their law, uh, but to fine the people who decided not to vote. So that um, entire... Um, I mean, so, you know, 54 million people who didn't vote to find them a, a 24 pound fine or 32 dollar fine. Now, is this actually going to happen? It's debatable. Um, do they have the capacity to do it? Again, it's debatable. Uh, but on social media, lots of citizens of Egypt have been making fun of it and poking fun. And you know what? There's nothing there's nothing funner than to call, uh, you know, a dictator who's trying to give that veneer of legitimacy a loser for this week. Uh, that is but Peter, I'd yeah. love to, to hear your nomination for today. So my uh, loser of the week nomination goes to the now former European Commissioner for Trade, Phil Hogan, who decided, out of all things, to break lockdown regulations with a society with a dinner uh, plant. And ironically... The same dinner that got last week's nominee winner of the week, loser fired, was the same one he was attending. <laughs> and they didn't report that they had any testing or what symptoms. So you can guess what the Irish media was doing the moment they found this, asking why was he breaking the rules that he should be following as a politician. 
And Mr. Hogan's first initial response was more or less, uh, I followed all my protocols that I was told to do. And he may be right, but he didn't report the correct thing at the proper time. And now, because of this, Mr. Hogan's out of a job. A job that, mind you, the, e the EU Trade Commissioner is a very powerful role and a very lucrative role in the commission. And for that, he's gone from being a powerful person in Brussels to having nothing in a week. I think this is the first uh, commissioner who has actually resigned from this current European Commission yes. government as well. Over, yes. yeah, quite an embarrassing scandal there. And, and yes, and this government's only a year old, and they're a few months away from probably having their biggest headache, in the, which is Brexit talks finally coming to an end. So this probably isn't very pleasant. Terrace, do you have any nominations for the loser of the week? Uh, it's kind of collective. It's uh, the opposition parties in the New Brunswick legislature. Certainly, I wanted to say Peter McKay, but they really kind of messed up here. Uh, as many of you may know or have seen, uh, I did write an article on this, the fact that New Brunswick is holding a, a provincial election in September. And it was because the opposition just wouldn't negotiate with the current premier, uh, Blaine Higgs, over COVID relief legislation. And so they're at an election now, and a recent poll just came out, and it shows the progressive conservatives with a very resounding lead uh, with the liberals trailing, and the Greens still holding their position from 2018. And the People's Alliance, which is a local Brunswick party, going from a respectable 12, 13 points in 2018 to 2%. Uh, so most likely looking like they're going to be out of the out of the legislative assembly. So just overall bad political miscalculation that is going to come to bite them come September 14th. And the funny thing is, he mentions that it was the, the People's Alliance Party that actually caused this mess. They didn't actually want to approve the COVID release. So they may have actually triggered their own you know, demise here, the irony of all that. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to stay afloat. I don't see how they... <laughs> <laughs> I'm unless Chris Austin, who's uh, a, a member of the legislative assembly, unless he somehow has a strong a personal vote to win, because uh, their other seat where they are really strong in Miramichi, the liberal leader, Kevin Vickers, uh, is running in that and probably will have a strong position there, given he was a former sergeant of arms during the attack on uh, center block. You know, famous and also famous for when he was ambassador to Ireland to helping hand over a protester to the Garda. So, <laughs> uh, needless to say, kind of a prevalent figure, not prevalent figure that he should win that seat and kind of render the People's Alliance useless. Yeah, and thank you both for that. Before we leave tonight, uh, just we'd ask you all for next Tuesday to put Mark on your calendars. Election Daily will be having coverage of the Massachusetts primaries. And if you've been on Twitter, the Ed Markey, Joe Kennedy saga is finally coming to an end. You can all watch it live and see someone's <laughs> humiliating defeat. Sorry, I ha I'm getting too excited over this. But you please watch it. Election Daily's coverage starts in the night. It will roll on until all the results are done and counted and we have winners. Again, thank I thank Terrace and Adam for their time tonight. We ask you to subscribe and, if you, and to recommend this to a friend, if anyone, to anyone you may know. Again, thank you. Have a great night and have a good weekend.